It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today we have the distinct honor and pleasure of having a very special guest with us. He is a part of what I would consider to be a royal jazz family. His name is Chris Brubeck. He's not only a performer, composer, and educator, he is also now the co-founder of a new record company that has a release out that will be the focus of our discussion today. Chris, thanks for joining us. And it's my pleasure to be with you. And Chris, the recording that I would like to discuss with you is the 1959 recording Time Out, which is now being re-released in a sense uh, under the title of Time Outtakes. And it's a process of discovery that this has come about to where you're releasing some until now, unpublished or released recordings of that infamous 1959 session. Yeah, that's uh, you nailed it. And uh, the reason we even knew about it at all was not from talking to our dad about it or anything like that. And December 6th it would have been his 100th birthday. There were two books written in the last year. One was by Philip Clark and was a biography about Dave. And he interviewed Dave a lot. He's English, uh, Philip Clark is. So that happened a lot on tours and backstage and Symphony Hall and that kind of thing. We talked to him too. And then another scholar did uh, a book all about the recording of Time Out. And they were going through archives and they discovered, hey, did you guys know that they, they let us know that there's, there are actually really pretty damn good outtakes from Time Out. And that was intriguing. And when we uh, got copies uh, from archives and started listening, we're going, well, actually, some of these takes are even better than what went on timeout. I think a, one prime example is Dave's uh, famous tune, Blue Rondo a la Turk. Dave went deep in his blue solos to that section in the middle. He played like 10 choruses. And I think on the real Blue Rondo, he played three or four. And he was playing blues, but interweaving the the musical cell of the da 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 da, da while he's playing the blues. I mean, it was very very interesting. on the final timeout, he doesn't do that at all. And I bet probably Tio Macero, the famous producer of those records and also Miles Davis's records, probably said to Dave, hey, you know, that track's kind of long, you know, the next time we do it, uh, we'll come back and if you do it, do a shorter version. Okay, so 
that's how it ended up. That was a more contained version. It doesn't mean that the original long one wasn't better, you know? Um, so, and with CDs, of course, length is not the issue at all. So we kept making these discoveries. And, and for me personally, it was literally thrilling because it like took me like through a tornado, through a time warp to being hearing the music I heard as a kid, but different versions of it. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was really exciting for me and, and everyone in our family to start hearing this music. So how was it actually discovered? Uh, you, you had mentioned that somebody had been doing some research and found this. So, you know, oftentimes, Chris, in, in this business, we hear, well, we have this uh, undiscovered, found-in-a-shoebox recording that nobody knew about. So did you know that these had existed did your father, Dave Brubeck, ever say, hey, Chris, you know, we got some stuff we didn't use, but it's in this vault or in this archive? No, he, he, he never said that. But he, of course, had acquired in our house in, in Connecticut at his house, you know, boxes and boxes of tapes. And I'm so busy playing concerts all over the world. I'm not going through them all. And we developed a relationship at the University of the Pacific uh, where they had librarians and archivists. And uh, my wife, Tish, uh, was basically in charge of, you know, sending boxes of tapes to these people who are professional archivists. They have a method and degrees in college. And how do you go about finding this stuff? And so when the people that wrote the books about Dave went to those archives, they, that's where they started saying, hey, in that box was this thing where someone must have given Dave a, a reel of tape as a reference. And the gentleman, Stephen Chris, that wrote the book specifically about the making of Time Out, you know, he knew the history so much stronger than I did at that point, that there were four recording sessions. Two of them took place on one day. I think it was June 25th, 1959. And then there's like an eight-day break. And then there's another recording session. And then there's our last recording session. So that's how we heard about it and started hearing these tapes. And then also we made a big effort to see if we could get back to the multi-track originals uh, from Columbia that they would have. However, like everything else in the world, this was very much hampered by COVID in terms of the kinds of people that would you know, functionally go into what they call Iron Mountain and look for tapes. We're not allowed to go into Iron Mountain and look for tapes or offices. So every, it was like a big musical treasure hunt, but uh, we, we came out with the goods. So when you finally did get everything assembled, first of all, was it in good shape uh, and how much of it had to be processed or tweaked, if you will? Uh, but then you also took the uh, step of establishing a new label called Brubeck Editions to put all this together and release it. Yeah. Well, we that's been something we've been wanting to do for a long time. And my brothers and I, uh, we were always so busy touring and stuff that uh, it was talked about. It was like a dream. And then when we found out that this recording existed, we thought like, well, if we're ever going to do this in our life, this recording should be the foundation of what we do. Because we had all heard, well, actually, we were on tour in England, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, when we first heard some of these, you know, very disorganized outtakes or sections of takes. And we said, oh, my God, the potential is really here. This could be so good. And, and we know that Time Out itself, the, the, the album that everyone knows, uh, 
it's it's like a, an evergreen. It sells every year a certain amount. So we think the potential is high that people will hear this and like it every bit as much, except for them that love the album. This is like, in some cases, maybe even better versions or at least equally wonderful versions that they've never heard before. So it's like kind of like a new record, like or going to a new jazz concert. I mean, that's the beauty of jazz. That people improvise, so it's not the same every night. Uh, and we think that it will have uh, long-lasting sales and, and, and fans and will help us, you know, go out. Uh, the, the credo of our record company is to keep finding stuff that the public's never heard before and uh, organize that music so they're getting exciting recordings that, that we've really done our best to make sound as wonderful as possible. So now, are, are you as a family uh, all sort of rummaging around through the cellar or the uh, the, <laughs> the, the garage and say, what's in that box? <laughs> um, I, I think that actually oh, there's no rummaging left to do. Um, the, the archives that were in California are about to be moved to Connecticut, and we're very, very excited because... Um, the Wilton Library is creating a room for the Brubeck Archives, and they're very excited. There's already, already in the Wilton, Connecticut, uh, the last time they expanded the library, they built a concert hall called the Brubeck Family Music Room, and there's lots of concerts, including jazz concerts. And my wife, Tish, and I helped get, you know, the top New York musicians like, you know, Fred Hirsch, Bill Charlap, Taylor Eggsty, you know, we know a lot of these people personally, and for them, they get on a train and, and they can give a, a recital in a 180-seat hall with rabid jazz fans that, you know, no one's drinking or, or whatever in the meantime. They're just really listening. So that's turned into a very uh, exciting series as well. But that'll be the new home of the archive. And, and really, in, in the next couple months, it's going to be physically moving. And all the tapes, et cetera, will be coming from there. And, and there's other places where there's tapes, too, like... Some of us, like you said, well, are we going to be rummaging? Yes, yeah, some of us have things to rummage through. <laughs> okay. Did you as a family get together either virtually or uh, even face-to-face uh, -face and then drag uh, Kabir Sagal into the picture and formulate this recording? Basically, when Darius, Dan, and I were on tour, and also my wife Tish and Darius's wife Kathy were together, we heard these basic things and said, wow, you know, this is really great. And um, actually, uh, I had, I met Kabir Segal through Douglas Brinkley, who I knew because I'd written a big orchestra piece about Teddy Roosevelt. Mm. <laughs> and I had to learn a lot about Teddy to write the orchestra piece that was narrated with historical facts. And he was part of a national organization. And I know he, uh, He's like the executive of Hunter Thompson's estate, and he had a lot of Rolling Stone connections. It was interesting. He was very interested in my dad's music. So I, I let uh, him know that we had made this discovery. And he said, hey, I got to introduce you to my friend Kabir Seagal. And Kabir, as soon as he heard even the most rawest version of these things, said, wow, this is, this is going to be amazing. This is a really historical thing to find. Uh, you know, because I don't know how you exactly – codify it but you know time out it's one of the best-selling jazz albums of all time and maybe more importantly than that 
I've had, you know, literally tens of thousands of people tell me after gigs that Time Out was sort of like the gateway jazz album. A lot of people say, I didn't think I liked jazz. I heard that I liked it. And that led me to explore Miles Davis or you know, Paul Winter or, you know, whatever, just tons of different jazz artists. There was something about Dave, the, the musical critic Stanley Crouch was talking about him and um, he can be, who he could be because he just passed away, but he could be very opinionated. But he said something about, you know, it's Dave Brubeck wasn't trying to be commercial. He was just trying to follow his vision and being original and son of a gun, he got really, really popular and suddenly he was commercial. And he said, you know, some people resented him for his success, but he wasn't trying to be successful he was just trying to be a musician true to his inner voice and success followed him. So it's really great how as history marches on, people still listen to that record and say, wow, there was so much innovative things uh, going on. There's, I want to ask you, um, there, there's, do you know the, the critic and radio personality, Michael Bourne? I don't uh, know him personally, but yes, I, I know the name. He, he's a, a nice guy. He loves Dave. And I'll, I was always amazed that he said, I fell in love with him when I heard Strange Metal Lark, the ballad on the record, not Blue Rondo or Take Five. So I bring that up in the case of, of Dave's music, different aspects of it spoke to different people and made them fans for life. Well, and you bring up a good point about the fact that this was not your father's intent to... Uh, cross genres and become the commercial success, for example, that Take Five became, uh, or even this album, uh, the original that uh, was sent out and produced in 1959, it just started sparking interest across genres, and people became enamored with the music. And how could you not? I mean, the music is so incredible especially when you consider this is the, what has been termed the classic quartet of Dave yeah. Brubeck. Maybe if you had to, to say the single most amazing discovery is that my brothers and I, we always grew up with, you know, our honorary uncles, Paul, uncle Joe, uncle Gene being these um, stellar, amazing musicians and when you're a kid, you know, you just accept them for who they are. As far as we know, the guy down the street could play that good or whatever. But as you got older and you went to concerts and saw, you know, 2,000 people standing up going nuts after a Joe Morello solo or you start reading, you know, oh, there's reviews. Paul did not so lyrical. You know, you get an idea that these guys are really special. But when we started listening, we discovered there's a whole 45-minute section of outtakes where they were trying to record take five on the first day and they were making lots of mistakes my brothers are like oh my god they made mistakes too we're off the hook you know paul desmond had didn't have the melody lockdown of uh, take five joe morello even though you would think actually the famous beat of jing 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 of five four it's the most obvious beat in the world of how you would play five if you were a jazz player but that's not at all how he was approaching it he was approaching it with this really offbeat Latin beat that was so hard that in the studio, you could hear him not be able to play his own thing that he made up. And uh, on the record, we have a little section we call Band Banter, 
where you can hear in the band saying, come on, Joe, you're going to get this together. You know, Paul Dems is, Hey, I need coffee down here. You know, it's like, <laughs> so originally take five was just supposed to be a ditty as a background for a drum solo. That was the concept. And um, then it, then it took off the way it did. And it, it's good that you included that track uh, with the band banter because it it's kind of fun and listening to that and and hearing them just be genuine and being each other. Uh, yeah. And and ribbing and uh, yes, <laughs> talking about mistakes or choice moments and it's like hmm that worked this didn't work etc. And I'm sure that goes on in most recording sessions, but we never hear it. Until this, you, you you've exposed the band. Yeah, and and one of the things that was, I really learned a lot. It was, it was kind of sweet because, I I know my dad was always very very fond of Eugene Wright uh, as a human being as well as as a bass player, and I, I love this one point. You know, he he says to my dad, he said, "Hey Dave, you blew it." Co six two five five. Seven. Is there a time today? Strange metal art. Thank you. <laughs> Strange metal art. Thank you. Here we go. <laughs> Got it. I forgot the 3-4. You had it going, though, Jim. You, yeah, but it was sure nice, wasn't it? Yeah, you blew it. <laughs> One, two. <laughs> and he wasn't doing it to be mean. It was his technique of kidding him to loosen him up and also i hear the humanity of my dad uh you know because i could have put in 20 minutes of band banter on that record uh he was always claiming that if something fell apart that it was his fault even if it clearly wasn't his fault because he just was so much the captain of the ship that didn't want people to get down on it he wanted him to know you know, that that's okay. We're experimenting. This is hard. Don't let it get you down. You know, we're going to make it, you know, everything. Is, oh boy, I'm really digging this. This is, you know, he was like the cheerleader for the whole sort of quartet situation. And, you know, that sort of fit his vibe. And when we grew up knowing Paul, who was always a very cerebral kind of guy, he had uh, pretty thick glasses and he liked to sit in a restaurant and drink scotch and he, almost like he was the invisible man, always a little bit separate from the world but uh, as jim hall the famous jazz guitarist said paul's the only musician he ever knew that could improvise a melody that was more beautiful than what went with the song originally he, he was such a, a force i'm glad you bring that up because this will give us an opportunity to walk a little bit through the recording the outtakes sure. recording and let's start with paul because your father is attributed uh, with the, uh, by so many people mistakenly uh, as the, the guy who created Take Five, and it wasn't your father that composed that. Yeah, um, well, it, it was, it was funny, uh, is that most people that are the leaders of bands, there's sort of an unwritten thing where if a tune evolves, they usually claim that they wrote some of it. And if you go back in quartet history, actually Paul at one point said to my dad, you know, we should hire someone to write original tunes because they are doing this ingenious versions, uh, great arrangements of, of jazz standards. 
and and my dad said, you're saying we should hire a composer to write tunes for our group? He said, yeah, we should do some original material. My dad said, I can write, which is funny. I guess they had found their milieu so much by doing these uh, interesting arrangements of jazz standards. And so the next week, Dave came back to Paul and said, what do you think of this tune? And it was In Your Own Sweet Way, which became a jazz standard, and The Duke, which became a jazz standard. So I guess that was a proof that my father could write if he thought anyone wanted him to. And so he did. And he was encouraging other people to write. He wanted to get them involved. So in the history of the classic quartet, I would say that Dave probably wrote you know, I'll just make them a number. Let's say there were 400 tunes. Dave probably wrote 395 of them or something. And he really wanted Paul to get into it. So he said, yeah, yeah, Paul, you really, Joe's got this 5-4 idea for, for a drum beat and you should really try to write something. And then Paul came up with these two ideas and Dave said, oh, if you flip them, you do that, you do that. And he sort of helped him arrange it. And then he had said, yeah, okay. You know, that's your tune, Paul. Um, of course, you know, that little moment of generosity could have been worth millions of dollars. As it turned out, most of the Take Five royalties, uh, since Paul did not have any heirs when he died, it was willed to the Red Cross. So that's a kind of a good feeling to know that there's been a lot, thousands of people have been helped by the money from that tune. Oh, gosh. Uh, to no survive doubt. any kinds of disasters. Mm -hmm. uh, indeed. So while we're on take five, and then we can go through some of the other tracks as well, I, I, I think it should be revealed to listeners that the name of the release, Time Outtakes, is not the traditional outtakes that most of us think of, where you get a little snippet, or you hear like maybe two, three minutes of something, whether it be dialogue or music, etc. But the, these are like full-on tracks uh, this particular uh, track of Take 5 uh, on the Outtakes album is 5 minutes and 48 seconds. So it's not just a, a little snippet where they made some changes and threw that one out. Uh, but instead, was this all 5 minutes and 48 seconds, a, a, a full uh, recording? It was not interrupted kind of thing? Or it's not put together like a little of this, a little of that? Well, it, it depends. Mostly they, they were what they were. Uh, I can tell you that, for example, the tune Strange Metal Arc, my father has a big intro thing that maybe is between a minute and a half and two minutes long. And he played a great version. And when you listen to the entire, you know, 11 hours of sessions or whatever, you can hear that when Paul came in, he blew it. He got lost and he stopped the take. And my dad goes, oh, no, man, I just played the greatest intro. And, um, and then they went on and, you know, maybe days later they did it again. And that's what ended up on timeout. But since I heard him say, oh, that was my favorite intro. And I listened to it and I'm going like, well, this is great playing. And I heard him say that. And I was like, okay, I'm going to exceed what Tio Macero did for whatever reasons at that time. Maybe some of it's technological. I mean, they certainly knew how to splice at that point. But I heard a different alternate take where Paul didn't screw up. And and so my brother Dan and I and our engineer Scott Petito that we worked with, we said, okay, let's try to put these together. Dave's favorite intro and then Paul playing the 
where he comes in to the end. And it's not that, you know, it's different music that went on timeout. of those two segments made for just one, I think, stupendous take. So like with Strange Metal Arc, that one uh, is uh, seven minutes long uh, and a few change uh, seconds. So was this a version that they sort of like put aside or threw out saying, no, I don't like this version. Let's do uh, this version over here. Um, Well, they came back on a different day and recorded it again. So you know, there must have been, you know, some dissatisfaction for some reason, or maybe they just really forgot, you know, they did some sessions and they went off recorded and they came back. I mean, with take five, I think it's pretty remarkable because I believe it was on the last day, uh, the last date of the four, of the four sessions that they came back. And at that point, the melody was solidified I don't know who, could have been Tim Michelle, could have been my dad, maybe even Joe Morella said, hey, you know, that drum beat is too complicated for the average person, this sort of quasi Latin on the bell thing that I'm doing. I'll try this thing, jing, 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 jing. Um, and I do know from listening to all the tapes, Dave famous Vamp, boom, chunk, boom, 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 chunk, boom, boom, those chords. He started doing that in one of the take early takes because he was trying to keep Gene and Joe together. That was, you know, completely uh, necessity as the mother of invention glue, musical glue to glue that five. And they just weren't used to playing in five together. And almost no one was, but it it certainly was a discovery to hear that, that even my musical gods had their, (laughs) they were mere mortals and they couldn't do it at first. So would most of all of these tracks on the outtakes release uh, be ones that were from a different recording day or session? Uh, so uh, this yeah, is like a yeah, different version? Say, it, it's a mixture of, of those realities. Sometimes they would record a tune in later dates and then decide, you know what? The, what we did on the very first day is actually the best. So it, it's a very mixed history of which takes they, they really, really chose. And, and for whatever reasons. And one of the tracks that's on here is something that we call Watusi Jam. And I never knew it even existed. There was a tune called Watusi Drums that existed. And at the end of Time Out, the, the famous version that came out, there's a thing called Pick Up Sticks. But uh, we discovered that there was this thing like they had had a dinner break and Paul Desmond was late coming back from dinner. Mm-hmm. And because I don't hear T. Romacero's voice, I thought, well, maybe they were having dinner together. And I know my dad's mindset well enough, being a cowboy that grew up for a dollar a day, uh, working out there on the range, that if he 
knew he was getting charged for studio time, he sure as hell was going to get his money's worth. So he just started jamming with Gene and Joe. thing that was kind of in six like pickup sticks ended up being and kind of like Watusi but it, it's in a different key and there's little hints of the melody and it was just turned into this huge drum so I was thrilled to discover it so that's on the record it existed in the sessions uh, and there it is there was also a take of I'm in a dancing mood which I never even knew that they tried to record in those sessions <laughs> intricate time switches in it from quick waltzes to quick swing to Latin to it's incredible. And they developed that arrangement just because they go on TV shows and they're trying to work every possible style within three minutes to make the director happy for their quick TV appearance. They re-recorded Someday My Prince Will Come, even though that had come out earlier on an album called Dave Diggs Disney, because they had mastered so much since that time, the art of playing uh, and a tune that's basically in three and playing four against it. And that was part of this, this time out, this idea of all the time signature things. But then I think what happened is that Kathy's Waltz explored that territory so well anyhow, they said, well, that would be redundant. So that they are actually erased it. It's not anywhere. You can see that they recorded it and it's gone. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you what your sister Kathy's uh, reaction was to the outtakes version of Kathy's Waltz. How does that differ or what's different from the 59 recording? Well, it's kind of such a beautiful, beautiful tune. And uh, in this version, in fact, maybe one of my favorite moments on the Time Outtakes record is Paul's solo on this tune. He does such a daring thing, what he does melodically and technically and making these huge skips uh, and making it not sound awkward at all. But anyhow, my, my sister was thrilled because she's, even though she's not a professional musician, she could recognize right away that um, it was really a wonderful take.
she's always had a little bone to pick because my sister Kathy spells her name with a C. And someone at Columbia, when they put out the original Kathy's Waltz, spelled it with the K. So all of her life, she sees that the song dedicated to her spelled wrong. And so we made sure that we put out a timeout text. I said, Kathy, we're putting it out. It's got C. It's called Kathy's Waltz with a C. And uh, we asked her to contribute some liner notes. And she said she felt finally vindicated. And she wanted to thank us and uh, finally being able to turn things around from the mistake that Columbia Records made. And she spelled Columbia with a K. I <laughs> 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 oh, love it. It's so, pretty cute. Well, it is. It, it, well, of course, obviously, it, it just goes to show how important one's name is and, and that you get it correct or spell it correctly and, and say it and not call somebody by one other name. You know, I'm sure that happens with a lot of you uh, with Brubex. Uh, there, there's mistaken identity sometimes. Absolutely. Is that guy Dan or is that Darius or who's this guy with the trombone? What, what is, what's his name again? Yeah, oh, yeah. A lot of people think that there's a guy that plays trombone with Dave, and there's also another guy that plays bass with him. <laughs> and uh, they will not often remember that it's me that's doing both. Or sometimes even musicians will come up to me and say that they they remember hanging out with me and everything. And I'm going like, well, either I'm losing my mind or they've never hung out with me, but they may have hung out with Dan <laughs> or Darius <laughs> and gotten us confused, you know. So I'm sure that uh, that's fun. And, and, and speaking of fun, I, I'm sure that this is fun for you. Uh, and what a great tribute and an honor for your dad on his 100th birthday anniversary to, to have this be released and for all of the world to listen to this music that is uh, just an iconic release from 1959, but yet show a different take on the music or a different little bit of a different perspective. And of course, you know, Dave had this whole other career as a classical composer that um, a lot of people don't know about. And it was always an interesting challenge in his life to try to, to keep his jazz fans and let them know about his classical music. Alan, you mentioned about this is so great for this record to be coming out to honor Dave's centennial. But another project I, I did was to write an orchestral suite that didn't involve the hiring of jazz musicians as extra soloists. And it's called the timeout suite. And the idea was that orchestras all over the country could perform something saluting my dad's music that had most of the tunes of timeout in there. And I'm very happy to say that uh, performance today is going to play the world premiere of that, which happened before COVID with an orchestra out in California, the Stockton Symphony Orchestra, and a good friend of ours conducting it. And they did a great performance. So I feel like, yay, one of my plans is actually happening. Because <laughs> a lot of people will hear that and they'll hear your show and then people will start thinking about Dave. And that's the whole point. I want them to hear his music again and think about it. And it is kind of a bittersweet moment, uh, I'm sure, for your family right now and all of you personally, that you can't, have those uh, lavish events and things that you had probably either planned or hoped for with respect to now COVID kind of putting a, uh, a wet blanket on a lot of things in our lives. Yeah, yeah. A lot of plans just 
kind of went up in smoke and most of the people that that booked us for different things like monterey jazz festival or new orleans jazz festival they're saying well let's let's rebook this for next year but then you know then you ask yourself and, and never mind those big guns but just everyone we're rebooking and then rebooking the rebooking and rebooking the rebooking it all depends on what's going to happen uh you know with with the virus and the vaccines and the population and uh certainly hope that it it comes under control you know just for everyone's sake so in closing what would you tell our listeners to listen for or how should they approach outtakes what would be their uh, moment of discovery i think the whole thing is a moment of discovery and and i'm also very pleased that we just got one review where the, the reviewer said and by the way, this sounds great. These guys have somehow made this sound like a, a modern recording. It sounds phenomenal. One of the things that was really interesting to me is that, you know, in 59, Columbia Records were were con- mono. Stereo became a newfangled thing a couple of years later. But whenever I'd hear mono recordings, I'd go like, why does this sound like it's not mono to me? Then we discovered that most of these early quote-unquote mono recordings were cut with three tracks on an Ampex uh, tape machine. And so there is actually some stereo action going on in this mono thing. And so when we remix these things, we tried to emphasize early stereo was kind of a drag because they say, we're going to prove we have stereo. The drum set is entirely on the right and the piano is entirely on the left, which actually like, woohoo, you know, but it didn't actually sound good. That's why a lot of people say early mono sounds better. But to us, this is a really cool mixture, uh, technically, of, of getting the original uh, studio sound and the leakage that makes this stereo kind of thing. And there's, you know, new music on this recording. Uh, it's, like, uh, it's like having a brand new record, in a sense, uh, with fabulous performances that, to me, just reveals more about each musician and their depth. And if you're a drummer, you've got two unbelievable ass-kicking drum solos on this record. <laughs> You know, I'm sure Watusi Jam never went on because they stumbled upon this take five thing. There was a drum solo, but, you know, and I'm in a dancing mood. I mean, so so many of these things, it just proved to me that these guys were one of the greatest groups of all time. And you get to see them in action, doing music that's familiar, and yet it is brand new. You've never had a chance to hear this before. Well, Chris, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing these moments with us about this particular release for this podcast today. And I truly appreciate maybe having our listeners take this journey, this discovery, and, and, and learn more about the music that was and still is and will continue to live on through the efforts of you and your family. Uh, well done, sir. Well, thank you very, very much. I appreciate those uh, encouraging words. It motivates me to dive into the next Undiscovered Treasures. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with performer, composer, and educator Chris Brubeck, the son of jazz legend Dave Brubeck. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. Please join us next week for a conversation with Abel Morellas and Candice Reyes, the co-founders of the Jazz Exchange, which is an organization committed to connecting communities through music while creating a platform for established and upcoming musicians. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. 
All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.